Good morning. All right, there you are. Well, it was good to um, hear that good report. As, as uh, Brad described, we, we uh, need to replace a building. There was a building out on the corner that was built by others that we have had the blessing of use, and we need to do the same for the next generation. And uh, yet we, we uh, determined as well, and in the midst of our circumstances, that we need to, needed to first build the, the body and build and strengthen the body in order to um, be able to pull together in building a building. And uh, as we have focused on that, it is just a joy to see what God is doing, to see that, that even uh, as, as, as David prayed concerning the temple, that God is still building his temple. And that temple is these people together being built up in Christ. And uh, so what was said then... Uh, fits now. I, I, I'm glad that's true in the Bible because that's, that's what I try to do on a Sunday morning, right? That, that what is said then fits now. And we have said that the book of Romans is the foundation of faith then and now. That in many ways, our Western culture is rushing back towards the first century. If you've thought, wow, now to be a Christian in the first century, when the church turned the world upside down, that would have been a, a place to be. That would have been a time to live in. Well, hang on. We're getting there. We're going there quickly, and you will have that opportunity, I think. And, and there are things that are described in the book of Romans, issues and circumstances then that are also true now. Now, let me start with a question. When you see something uh, people do that is, oh, that's just wrong, that shouldn't be. When you see somebody doing something that is clearly breaking the law, that is... Uh, well, how about, how about in, in Portland, again, these, these last several nights, um, the uh, smashing somebody else's store windows and those kind of things. That's just not right. Does that, what goes through your mind? Do you, do you look at that situation or circumstance and that tells you something about those people? Or that that tells you something about we as people? Does it tell you something about them or does it tell you something about us? Does it tell you something about some or does it tell you something about humanity? You see? Because what we see that people do often, we will, I pointed out last week that when, uh, when, when Josh Lowen was reading and, he, and his son was pointing out at the rest of us like it's you, you people. And yet when you point out, there's fingers pointing back, Right? There's something about that in Romans chapter 2. I call Romans chapter 2 kind of a flyover chapter. What do I mean by that? It seems like you could get in the logic of salvation, the sinfulness of humanity that is so well portrayed in Romans chapter 1, that you could move from there right into Romans chapter 3 that continues that march that all have sinned. There's none righteous, no, not one. That moves us there into all of our need for the gospel, for justification, for redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That Where does chapter 2 fit into that? Chapter 2 addresses in the midst of that, in the reality of human failing and sinfulness, the tendency of ourselves to judge others. Now, you might 
think at first blush that Romans chapter 2 is addressing a self-righteous person who, who sees others' faults and doesn't see his own, doesn't even see their own need for the gospel. But Paul is writing to Christians. What if Romans chapter 2 is actually addressing Christians who have a tendency to judge others even while they give themselves a pass? Could that, that they see others do things and the things that they see others do tells them something about others, it doesn't tell them anything about us as a whole. That Romans chapter 2 is to salvation what Romans chapter 7 is to the Christian life. In Romans chapter 7, we find that we are unable to live out God's new life by keeping rules, a law, or a list. We're not able to do it. That the things I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I still find myself doing. Who, Paul closes the chapter with, will set me free from the body of this death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then we move to chapter 8, that we live by the power, by the strength of God's Holy Spirit, who will, that spirit that raised Christ from the dead, will give life to our mortal bodies. That the desire to live in chapter 7, that we cannot do on our, on our own by keeping rules and a list, God does in us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Well, Romans 2 applies that into salvation in terms of I cannot be good enough. We are unable to do what it takes to receive God's approval that we need God's Savior. Really, all of us. Romans 1 echoes the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3. In a similar way, Romans 2 echoes the book of Jonah. In fact, I've titled Romans chapter 2, When Jonah Comes to Church. You remember the story of Jonah. Jonah knew God. Jonah knew God's judgment. Jonah also understood God's mercy. Jonah understood God's forgiveness. In fact, Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh and pronounce judgment on Nineveh. Why? Because he suspects that God, as merciful and as forgiving as he is, he can see what's going to happen. He's going to go. He's going to pronounce. He's going to warn them, and they are going to turn. And they're going to call on God for mercy, and God is just so merciful, he's going to do it. And Jonah can't stand the idea, the thought of it. Imagine that God would even forgive them. So Jonah wants no part of that. But the book of Jonah is not so much about the saving of Nineveh as the saving of Jonah, the saving of Israel. And there's something, if Jonah is not about Jonah but about Israel, then Jonah is also something about the church. And that, I think, is where we find ourselves in Romans chapter 2. There's a tendency for those who have received God's mercy to still extend judgment to others. Romans is, is um, an expansion of that phrase in Romans chapter 1. Romans 2 is an expansion of Romans chapter 1 where it's said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the gospel which is the power of God for salvation to everyone, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. Because Romans 2 makes, repeats that phrase. The only place in Romans where Paul repeats the phrase. And it's first that God's judgment will come to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. 
And God's salvation is for the Jew first. God's mercy will be for the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Romans 2, when Jonah comes to church, we can learn something from this conversation. As Paul writes to Christians in Rome, and is there, as there are differences within the church, there are different kinds of people in the church. There are some from a Jewish background that are comfortable following the mandates and the statutes of the law. There are other Roman, Greco-Roman people who have come to faith in Christ who may have much less or almost no background in the Jewish law and its, its demands for righteousness. And it's easy for those who are, in a sense, then, more religious, could I say more churchy, to look down on those who are less so. That is not their background. And so could there be a tendency to judge one judging another even within the church? Now, what does that fit into Paul's presentation of the gospel? Because that's what's going on here in 1 to 3. We're all about understanding God's grace in the gospel. But if you, in a, in a tendency to judge the faults or the sin of others, you, dis, you diminish God's mercy toward them, you also are diminishing in your thinking God's mercy toward you. That will spin you sideways in an effort to try to do the things that would merit God's approval because you're focused more on doing and what would be judged than you are on the forgiveness and the mercy that God has extended. With that in mind, with that background just playing around in your mind, I want to I go through the book of Romans, chapter 2, and we'll take four steps through it. So we'll read four sections at a time. And the first one, beginning to verse 1 through 5, we're going to see that Jonah's who judge, Jonah's who judge others are missing God's mercy themselves. They are missing, they're overlooking, or they are diminishing God's mercy in their thinking. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same kind of things. We, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That in judging others, I'm storing up wrath against myself. That's a strange statement. Jonah's who judge others are missing God's mercy even for themselves. We tend to judge others to feel better about ourselves, to, to put ourselves in a better light. But judging others condemns us as well if the things we judge in them, one way or another, we also do the same kinds of things. My ego doesn't like the fact that I don't bring anything of value to the equation. In a performance-based paradigm, where even when guys meet each other, men meet men, they typically ask, what do you do? What, what do you contribute in the world? What do you do that is of value? We define ourselves easily by what we do. 
And that leaks into our theology as well. In a performance-based paradigm, I have a tendency to compare myself to others. But I tend to do that in a, in a fallacy in my judgment, judging where I extend mercy for me, but judgment for you. We tend to judge based on ourselves, based on our intentions, while we judge others based on our actions. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt that we do not give to others. In fact, we easily assume the worst. Why? Because it makes me feel better about me in comparison. Now, that tells me something about me. The fact that I, I will condemn somebody else because that makes me feel better about me in comparison tells me that I'm not feeling good about me. Tells me that I'm not resting in the forgiveness, the mercy that is in Christ, that I'm seeing myself in me and I'm not seeing myself in Jesus. Do you see the difference? My judging of others is an indicator that I am overlooking, I'm missing, I'm diminishing my own thinking the impact of God's mercy to me. If I diminish mercy to others, I will end up also diminishing my understanding of God's mercy to me. Actually, the reality of, of guilt moves God to sacrificial mercy. God has no misconceptions. God has no rose-colored glasses about the guilt of humanity. And yet for God, what did that do? It didn't move him to judge humanity. It moved him because he so loved the world that he gave his only son. Our need, our falling short, moved God to mercy in a way that cost him everything. But verse 4 says, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness, his forbearance, his patience, his mercy, not knowing that that very kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. Repentance in what? Well, we could jump to Romans chapter 12 and we could say, well, this is, I need to live better. I need to do this. I need to not do that. That kind of repentance is about the things that I do that are right and wrong. And I think if we, if we jump there, we miss something important here. Something that was echoed in Micah. God has shown you, O oh man, Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. God has shown you what is good and what the Lord requires of you. But to do justly, yes, to do what is right, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Those last two, I think, are the key to rightly understanding where Romans 2 fits in. That it's not a flyover chapter that we can jump from 1 to 3. We could do that and we would, we would overlook the deepness of our own need, a need that is revealed to us in our tendency of judging others and of wanting to pass judgment rather than extend mercy. You see, God will judge. That, that, that tendency in us to judge, there's something of God's nature there and that God will judge, but he will not judge like Jonah. God will judge, but not like Jonah. God will judge impartially. Jonah's don't judge partially. We judge others differently than we judge ourselves. But look at verse 6. He, God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now, let me pause a minute there. Which of those do you see yourself in? 
Look at those two verses again, 7 and 8. Who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, or those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Which of those do you see yourself in? If we're honest, and Romans 7 is going to press us on this, we have to say both. And where does that leave us? With a God who will judge completely, impartially, without any favoritism, without any sweeping under the carpet. There will be tribulation and distress of every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. But when Gentiles, the nations who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show the work of the law written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This section could sound like God is going to judge impartially everybody, pass or fail, according to your works. He will render to each one according to his works. But in that judgment, according to our works, there is nobody who is going to measure up. Chapter 3 will underscore that. There's nobody, and he's already said that for us here, that you do the same things. Okay? Paul says clearly other places that God is not saving us. Our our salvation, our rescue, the gospel is not based upon our works. That would not be gospel. That would not be good news. The gospel is rather that we are saved by faith in another because we cannot measure up on our own. The gospel in Romans chapter 4 and verse 5 speaks of the one who does not work I don't do what's right. In Romans 4, 5, go ahead and put that up on the screen. Romans 4, 5, the one who does not work but who believes in God, who justifies the ungodly, his faith, specifically his faith in Jesus, in his place, his faith, his trust in God and in God's Son for him is counted to him for righteousness, a righteousness that he doesn't have. That's Romans 4. We're going to get there in a couple of weeks. But did you notice God justifies the ungodly? God doesn't justify righteous people. God doesn't save righteous people. Righteous people would need no saving. Like Jesus said, it's the sick who need a physician. And that's all of us. Okay, so the gospel is clear. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says the same thing. When Paul writes to another church, a church in Ephesus, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves is the gift of God. It is, it's not a result of works so that no one can boast. Only God gets to boast here. Only God can shout about what he has done for us. And if we're going to boast, if we're going to shout, it's going to be shouting about what God has done for us in Jesus. So a judgment based on works is Jesus' work for me. It's very important that Jesus is sinless. It's very important that they could find no fault in him. He is the sinless lamb of God who, having no sin or guilt of his own, is able to bear the guilt of humanity 
in our place. So that God has judged according to works. He has judged our sin fully in Christ. We'll, we'll develop that more in chapter 3, but it's hinted at already. There is a judgment of work. But our point is actually that we're aware of our guilt. We're aware that we fall short. Whether with or without the law, we know right and wrong. Despite postmodernism's muddling the waters, we still know things are right and things are wrong. And so when we see something that's wrong, it reminds us that humanity is all screwed up. Humanity is broken. We are wrong. Even in the midst of knowing some things that are right. You know, even a car thief has a conscience. This is a new story. just came out last week. Fantastic story. It seems there was this car thief. Well, first of all, it seems there was this mom. A young mom. She's in a hurry. She's got a lot going on. She, needs, she doesn't have meat for dinner. And so she orders the, for the local butchery. And this happened over in Beaverton just last week. She orders from the local butchery. And so she pulls up. She has her four-year-old son in the back seat of the SUV. She's only going to rush in, pick up her order, already paid for, and rush back out, right? So she leaves the boy in the car, leaves the SUV running at the curb. She runs in. Well, it seems there was this car thief, and he's walking by. Fortunately, he's already wearing a mask, and so he sees this car running. Nobody's in the driver's seat, takes a quick look around, jumps in, takes off. Well, he only gets half a block down the street, and he realizes maybe the kid said something, maybe he looks in the rearview mirror, he says, there's a kid in the back seat. He does a quick U-turn, spins around, comes back, screeches up to the curbside where the young mom is frantically screaming out there in the curb, right? Somebody just took my car and my kid. And the car thief jumps out of the car, and he starts yelling at the woman. Lady, what are you thinking? Don't you know how stupid, how irresponsible it is to leave your child in a running car like that? Somebody could steal the car. Now, now, now get your kid out of the car. She gets her kid out of the car. He jumps back in and takes off. <laughs> they found the car over in Portland later on that afternoon. Happy ending. But, I mean, even a car thief has a conscience. I mean, yeah, he'll steal a car, but he's no kidnapper. Don't make me a kidnapper, lady. I mean, don't you realize, I, mean, I may steal a car, but I'm not like that endangering a child. Even a car thief has a conscience. We know what is right and what is wrong even if we don't do it. That's the point of Romans chapter 2, that God will judge, but God, God doesn't judge the way that we judge. And even our own sense of right and wrong points to and reinforces that God must judge what is wrong. I mean, we would look at that situation and laugh at the self-righteousness of the car thief, right? Dude, what are you thinking? And yet he only sees her fault in the process. But we have the same kind of thing. Jonah, like ourselves, like Jonah, judging others exposes our own guilt as well. The next section of verses. When we judge others, we only show our own guilt also. If you call yourself a Jew, verse 17, and rely on the law and boast in God. Now, we've got to change that a little bit if we're going to think about in the church today. If you consider yourself a, a, a good Christian, and you rely on God's word and you boast in God and you know his will and you approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the word. And if you are sure that you yourself, in fact, are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children in Awana, 
having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples or commit sacrilege? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for it is written, the name of, the, of God is blasphemed among the nations because of you. We in the church would understand our role in society is to be a guide to those who don't see. We are to be light in the midst of darkness. This sounds a lot like us to the society around us and even to one another. And yet... We do the same kinds of things. I, I remember a time I was driving from Spokane. I was in the Air Force at the time. I was driving from, from Spokane across Interstate 90 back over to the west side of the state. I was coming to visit Julia. I'd do that about every other week before we were married. So every other weekend, I'd jump in my car, and I'd drive across straight five hours, stay with my dad, and I'd get to see Julia that weekend. Finally, the driving just, you know, we can't keep doing this. We got married. But uh, in the midst of that, one, one, one day, there I am, a fine, fine, sunny afternoon. I'm driving along, and I'm near to Moses Lake on Interstate 90, and there is this, this shiny red race car. And they just go roaring by me. And I said to myself, self, where is the state patrol when you need them? Huh? I mean, that guy needs a ticket. He is begging for a ticket. And then don't you know, to my pleasure, just after that, I look in my rearview mirror, and here is coming up Washington State Patrol. And he's coming up behind me, and then after he's coming up behind me, he changes lanes. He's not after me. He's going after that race car. And sure enough, get a little bit further down, another mile down the road, and I see these lights at the side of the road. And in front of those beautiful lights, there is this shiny red car. And I'm saying, yeah, amen, yeah, there is a God. And then that state patrolman waved me over also. <laughs> Do you ever wonder how they get two cars? One, car, one policeman gets two cars at the side of the road. This is how they do it. He had the one. He waves me over. I pull over. He gets the other guy. You pull up now behind him, and he's got us right there. And there we are. It turned out I was focused on the other guy's speed, and he was going way faster than I was. But apparently I was speeding too, completely oblivious to that side of the story. As he was coming up, after the other guy, he paced me too, just long enough to know how fast I'm going, and then he goes around me, gets the first guy, knowing that I'm going to catch up in due time. And there we were. We, we want to judge others while we give ourselves a pass. It, it's like when you're following somebody who's going really slow, they're an idiot, right? And when you're going slow and so somebody else has to, has to go around and overtake you and maybe there's not a really great line of sight, well, they're a jerk, right? It's never about what I'm doing. It's always about what the other person is doing. I'm not as bad as that. But Jesus compares calling somebody a moron is as condemnable as if someone was murdered. Now, I, 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 I'm going to make a, a rough guess here. Probably most of you have not murdered somebody. Is that, is that accurate? 
generally? I am so glad to hear that. But have you called somebody a moron, a fool, an idiot, a jerk? Yeah. And Jesus says that's condemnable too. And if you commit adultery, well, he says, you who, who, who teach do not commit adultery. He said, but if you have lusted after someone, you have already committed adultery in your heart, in your desires, and holds us accountable there. This, uh, you who, who abhor idols, he said, do you rob temples? That doesn't make any sense in a Jewish worldview. Why would Jews rob temples? But the rob temples is an idiom for act sacrilegiously, to dishonor that which is holy. Somebody who robs items out of a pagan temple only does so because they do not honor that deity, so-called, as a god. I mean, if you really thought he was a god, would you steal his stuff? No, you dishonor the God by stealing his stuff, right? Well, so to rob temples was understood in the idiom of the day. It was a figure of speak for, speech for dishonoring that which is holy or dishonoring to God. You abhor idols, but you also dishonor God. You say having idols is dishonoring to God, but you also dishonor God. It's another way to look at it, another way to understand that, that figure of speech that is being used. That God's name is being blasphemed elsewhere because of what you do. You looked in on others and what impact they're having, but what if, what if, in fact, our judgment of others actually smells worse to people around us than the things that we judge? Because to the people around us, to the people around us, they know that everybody does things that aren't right. That everybody does things. That's what he, he develops that early in the chapter. Everybody around us knows that all of us do things that are worthy of judgment. But what is desperately, urgently needed in that is the aroma of mercy. Where is the mercy? Where is the forgiveness? That's what all of us need. And when our focus is instead, when our focus is instead on the extending of the judgment that is due, that is not good news to anybody. And yet... There is gospel in this chapter. I was delighted we were workshopping together on Monday morning um, in preparation for the sermon that's coming in the week. And we, so we workshopped together, a bunch of us, on Monday mornings. And, and one of the young guys, he said, this is where the gospel comes up in this chapter. Yeah, this is where the gospel comes up. That Jonah's also, and this is why Paul is pushing this point now, because the one who is who is waist deep in the kinds of sin that are described in Romans chapter 1, they have, they, they have every awareness of their need for God's salvation. It's the self-righteous one, the one who would judge others because they don't measure up as well or as, as close as I do. That's the one that is in danger of missing their own need for God's mercy diminishing our estimation and our appreciation of God's mercy in our own lives. So he gets to the conclusion in verse 25. Jonah's also need a new heart that rejoices in God's mercy. Circumcision. Now, circumcision is the mark of belonging to God as his people. So to, to be circumcised and then as one who is circumcised, part of God's people, you followed God's law. 
Circumcision is deed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. If a man who is uncircumcised, one of the Gentiles, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically circumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, and yet you don't keep it. You break the law. Here's the point. He said there's a whole lot about being circumcised or not, which is not the point other than outward appearance. And an outward declaration does not make one righteous inwardly. I can say that I agree with this and I support that and I am part of this and I'm a member of the church, but that in itself does not change what I do. It doesn't change what I behavior. And if, be, if my behavior is in fact contrary to what I say that I believe, people are going to believe my behavior rather than my statement, right? Well, here's the punchline, verse 28. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What's being described here is emphasis on law, keeping the rule, following the code, which in the first century was boiled down to being circumcised. Now, a big issue in the first century church, I'm glad it's not an issue any longer, but a big issue in the first century church was should non-Jewish believers in Jesus be circumcised as Jewish believers in Jesus are circumcised? Because that goes all the way back to Abraham, right? The father of our faith. And Paul says, no. Outward circumcision is not the point. Outward religiosity is not the point. The point is a change of the heart, a circumcision of, part of the heart, not the body that Israel themselves looked to from the very beginning. You see it in the New Covenant. The prophetic promises of the New Covenant, like in Jeremiah 31 and, and in Ezekiel 36. We'll get there in a minute. But you see it as early as the book of Deuteronomy. When they barely got out of Egypt for 40 years, and they haven't even yet entered the land. And, and Moses is reminding them of God's law, and he has outlined their inability to keep it and their tendency to wander as they've already experienced and they will live out and fulfill. And yet, what they cannot do for themselves, God will do for them in giving them a new heart. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6. I'll put it here on the screen. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. God will circumcise your heart. God will give you a new heart. Ezekiel puts it in slightly different terms. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone and I will, I will give you a heart of flesh. I will give you a living heart. That's what God says he will do. That notion of a circumcised heart, that there is something wrong with me at the very core, that my judgment of others exposes that need of mercy. There's something wrong with me that I cannot fix. I cannot change. 
And the danger for us as believers in Jesus, who are seeking to follow Jesus, and yet in an environment around us, we see things that are wrong, or even as we rub shoulders with one another, if you get into a small group with others, if you get into a discipleship group with others, you're going to find they are less than I thought they were. And you get a little closer, you're going to find some days they don't wear their deodorant. You're going to run into things that you didn't know and you don't like and that you would judge. And they are wrong. And if your tendency is to judge them in comparison to you, you will feel better about you. But you will be diminishing mercy in the process. You will be diminishing mercy that God extends toward them, and in the process, you'll be diminishing your estimation of God's mercy toward you. That's why Romans 2 is important within the church today. You see, this is the, the tale of two brothers, Jewish brother and a Roman brother, and how they're going to get along together in one church with different backgrounds, different expectations, different perspectives, different measures. The unity that they have, the unity that the church has, that our culture lacks, that our culture desperately needs, is the forgiving mercy of God in Christ Jesus. That's what we need to be known for. There's another tale of two brothers, and that's found in Luke chapter 15. And we love this tale of two brothers. You think of it as the, the, the um, parable or the tale of the prodigal. We love the story of the prodigal son because that son comes back. He's completely unworthy and he knows it. He's unworthy to be called his father's son. He simply wants to be a servant. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. I know I can't measure up, but you just tell me whatever it is that is required of me, I'll do it. What, and how does the father receive him? We not only see ourselves in the prodigal son who, isn't, who doesn't even know if he, can be, if he can return, if he can come home, but you see the father. And you see the father who embarrasses himself. He shames himself to run down the road after this unworthy prodigal son. And even before the son can get his whole spiel out about how unworthy he is, the father pulls him to his feet. He takes his own robe off and he puts his robe on his son. And he takes the signet ring from his finger, the authority of the family, and he gives his son his standing in the family. Even as we have been made heirs of God and joint heirs of Jesus Christ, look what God has done for us, as unworthy as we are. And we love that part of the story. But neither of those are the main point of the parable. The main point of the parable is the older son. The older son who actually dishonors his father by underestimating his father's mercy and grace toward his brother and to him. Romans 2 is about the older brother. The older brother who, who doesn't realize how far God's forgiveness and God's grace really extends to others. And because of that, he diminishes his understanding of how far God's forgiveness and grace and mercy extends to him also and how badly he also needs it. If I lose sight of God's grace and God's mercy and my forgiveness, I am left with trying harder to measure up. And there is no gospel there. 
There is no good news there. The good news is that even though I cannot measure up, God has judged my guilt fully in Jesus. And he has accepted me in Jesus as his very own. And he will do for me and in me in a circumcised heart and his spirit in my spirit that I may walk with him forever. That is good news and that is available to everybody. Now you're here this morning caught in a tale of two brothers and I don't know which brother, but you do. You could be here this morning and you're still wrestling with the fact is the story of that first brother, that unworthy brother, that prodigal brother who wonders, can he really come home? Would the father really have him? That is still your question. And the answer is, oh, yes. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish, would have eternal life would have their guilt and unworthiness judged by another, would have the standing that the Father gives us in Jesus, you can come home. And it's by saying, God, I believe you concerning Jesus as my Savior. That's the only ground I can stand on. That's the only claim I come with. I do not come claiming to do whatever you tell me, except I will believe you and trust you concerning Jesus as my Savior. That is all I've got. Maybe you would perceive yourself this morning as maybe being closer to the other brother. I've known God. I've known God's ways. And I do catch myself at times in a judgmental attitude toward others when they simply are demonstrating that they need the same mercy I need. And rather than judging them and separating myself from them that I could feel better about myself, They desperately need the mercy that I know. And by withholding it to them, from them, I plant a seed that it could be withheld from me. That maybe I don't measure up either. No matter which of those brothers you are, the answer is to believe God this morning concerning his acceptance for us in Jesus. That is the good news. Concerning his giving of a new heart, of his own spirit within us, to do, to change us in ways that we cannot change. Would you pray with me? Father, our desire this morning is to to come to you as we are, not trying to hide it, but in, in open realization of our need for your mercy. Whether we are new to this faith in Jesus and need to understand it, need to trust Jesus as Savior, that's the step even to make this very morning. To say, Lord, I believe you concerning Jesus, your Son, who died for me, for my guilt, in my place, so that I could come home. Jesus did that for me. Or maybe it's in realizing I have known Jesus as Savior. But I have enjoyed that mercy for me and yet extend judgment toward others. A judgment instead of mercy that has a danger of eating away at my own heart. Father, 
Forgive me for that this morning. And Lord, would you, as David says, create in me a clean heart. Lord, would you renew your spirit within me. Father, would you indeed, even as I seek to do justly, Father, would you help me to love mercy and to walk humbly for others because your mercy, humbly extended, will be good news to those who need it. In Jesus' name.